Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sex, domestic abuse, and animal cruelty that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. There are some crimes so heinous that they become the stuff of legend, stories told to neighbors over cups of coffee, or whispered in hushed tones between classes at school. These atrocities can define a place, like the Belangelo State Forest, where serial killer Ivan Milat murdered seven unsuspecting backpackers, then buried their bodies in the dense scrub. Or like the small hamlet of Snowtown, where an abandoned bank vault became the hiding place for eight dismembered bodies who were tortured and killed by a twisted gang. Both of these stories have come to define parts of Australia. Everyone in the island nation seems to know the significance, and the crime we're discussing today is also from Australia and is perhaps even more gruesome than those. But at its center is a woman, and most people have probably never heard of her, but after this, you'll never forget the name, Catherine Knight. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Richardson, and this story is about the life and horrific crime of one woman in small-town Australia. Today, we'll delve into Catherine Knight's long history of domestic abuse, which lay the groundwork for a spine-chilling act of violence. Next week, we'll look at the lead-up to Catherine's bloody crime and how it earned her a dubious honor among Australia's female criminals. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When describing the most remote corners of the world, the term far-flung is often used to indicate just how far away a destination is. Hundreds of miles stand between these locales and their nearest neighbors. Far from civilization, far from the hustle and bustle of the nearest city, far from anything. The small Australian town of Aberdeen seems to fit that mold. 85 miles from the nearest city of Newcastle, and not really big enough to offer much interest for passing tourists, 
nor is there a whole lot for the people who live there. The town, located in the depths of the region's mining belt, has a few minor claims to fame. The Aberdeen Tigers Rugby Club have won 24 premierships in a local competition since 1897. It's also the birthplace of the Australian cattle dog, or so a sign boasts. A larger neighboring town also claims the breed as its own, which significantly lessens Aberdeen's ownership of the factoid. As far as famous or influential people who have called the tiny township home, there's typically only one name on the list, Catherine Knight. And hers is a name that the locals would likely prefer to forget, for it brought a level of attention to Aberdeen that it hadn't seen since, well, ever. When Catherine and her twin sister Joy were born in October of 1955, the town was mostly known for its abattoir. For a long time, the gruesome factory work was one of the few job prospects on offer in Aberdeen, so it's little surprise that most members of the Knight family seemed destined to work at the slaughterhouse. Of course, before she could join the family vocation, Catherine had to make it through a turbulent childhood. Her relatives were, by many accounts, somewhat infamous around those parts. As Catherine's half-brother Bobby put it, the family is rotten to the core. If there's any truth to that idea, the decay went all the way to the head of the family. Catherine told psychiatrists that her father, Ken, used to demand sex from his wife, Barbara, whenever he felt like it, even going so far as to chase her through the house. But this wasn't the playful cat and mouse of a primetime sitcom couple. Catherine said Ken would beat Barbara, sometimes knocking her out so he could rape her. Even when the children were at home, all eight of them, Ken carried on as he saw fit. Nothing was gonna stop him getting what he wanted, what he felt he deserved. As she grew up, Catherine regularly heard complaints from her long-suffering mother about the violence of men, about her husband's abuse. But Barbara never left. She stayed, enduring in her horrific marriage for decades. But though Barbara clearly suffered at the hands of her husband, she was by no means a blameless parent. She ran a tight ship and insisted that each of her children pulled their weight. Catherine and her siblings were expected to make their beds each morning, and it had to be perfect. Barbara wanted the sheets tucked so tightly that she could literally bounce a coin off of them. If she wasn't satisfied, she'd pull the sheets off the bed and order the kid to start again. And although she protected them from her husband's abuse, Barbara also used corporal punishment on her children. Unfortunately, that likely wasn't the only abuse Catherine experienced in her home. Though psychiatrists differed in whether they believed the stories, Catherine later claimed that her older brothers sexually abused her as a young girl. As far as we can tell, Kath never shared specifics of the abuse, but if her claims are true, then they might account for her childhood fear of the dark. As a result, Catherine carried a treasured doll around the house, believing it would protect her from things hidden in the shadows, and perhaps from her own family members. And the young girl wasn't alone in her fear of the Knight family home. Years later, neighbors noted that the atmosphere in the house was uncomfortable at best. They said it smelled of violence. And while it seems unlikely that there was a literal scent of violence in the air, 
it might be that visitors to the house picked up on something else. According to Peter Lawler's book, Bloodstain, Barbara used to tell people that there was a madness running through the women in her family. Unfortunately, there's little other information that might explain exactly what she meant by that. But whatever the case, it's clear that at least one of her children inherited some undesirable qualities. Before we continue with Catherine's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. When Catherine was an adult, two psychiatrists diagnosed her with borderline personality disorder, which the Australian BPD Foundation describes as a complex, often misunderstood mental disorder. This diagnosis is something we should keep in mind throughout Catherine's story, as we trace her erratic, sometimes disturbing behavior. The condition can make it difficult for people to feel safe in their relationships with other people, to have healthy thoughts and beliefs about themselves, and to control their emotions and impulses. Interestingly, women are three times more likely to be diagnosed with BPD than men. And crucially, BPD symptoms typically first appear in teenagehood or early adulthood, though what triggers the condition is less certain. It's thought that biological factors may play a role alongside social and environmental factors like childhood trauma and abuse. With that information in mind, Catherine's behavior for the rest of her life seems to make more sense. And as Kath got older, her nasty temper grew with her. As a teenager, she sometimes had to be held back when she flew into a rage to stop her from doing serious damage to whoever or whatever set her off. For this reason, and for her bullying nature, other kids at school learned to give her a wide berth. But Catherine's wrath was hard to avoid, and she was frequently seen fighting other kids in the schoolyard, sometimes with her twin sister Joy by her side to back her up. Other times, Joy was the person she fought, each teenage girl throwing punches with surprising ferocity. It might not shock you to learn that school wasn't Catherine's bag, and she left sometime around 1970. Somehow she'd flown under the radar in the classroom, and even though she was 15, Catherine could neither read nor write. She didn't even know how to spell her own name. Not that she intended to use book smarts to get ahead, Kathy knew where her destiny lay, at the abattoir, and she couldn't wait to get started. She got her first job at the slaughterhouse at 16, working to clean carcasses and cut them into smaller pieces. Eventually, she became a boner and was well known for her knife skills. She took great pride in her set of knives, something all the abattoir workers owned. She loved them. They were her most prized possessions, and she let no one else touch them. Not even her boyfriend, David Kellett, who she met at work. Exactly when the pair became an item is unclear, but the romance moved at a clip. Kellett fell for the tall redhead who liked to fish and wasn't afraid to throw hands if things got rowdy at the pub. She was the kind of girl who loved to hunt, and took delight in the trophies that came from it. Cowhides, skulls, horns, all of it was stunning decor to young Catherine. And as someone who particularly enjoyed his work on the abattoir's killing floor, Kellett was charmed by Catherine's fearlessness. Even if she was at least a foot taller than him, when it came to love, 
size didn't matter. As for love making, the teenage lovers reportedly had an insatiable sex drive. According to Kellett, he and Catherine sometimes went at it 10 times a day when they first started dating. Wherever they were, if they could find a little privacy, they took full advantage of it. In short, Catherine couldn't be happier. She had a job she loved and a man who fulfilled her notions of romance. There was only one thing that could make her life even better. One day at work, 18-year-old Catherine found Kellett in the break room. She'd decided that marrying him was the logical next step, and she wasn't content to sit around and wait for him to come to that conclusion as well. So there, just feet from where animals were slaughtered and cut into meat, Catherine proposed to Kellett. Whether he loved her or not, Kellett couldn't turn Kathy down. She knew how to look after him, and she was the best sex he'd ever had. He'd be a fool to say no. So the couple wed in 1974 in a slapdash courthouse ceremony. The bride wore pink, while her hungover groom donned purple paisley. Then, once they said I do, the newlyweds strolled across the road to the neighborhood pub for an afternoon of drinking with friends and family. But the happy day wasn't all wine and roses. At one stage, Barbara pulled Kellett aside to give him a stern warning. She told him to be careful with Catherine, to never cheat on her. She said, you better watch this one, she'll kill you. Unfortunately, like so many warnings about Catherine Knight, it seemed to go ignored, and the consequences were disastrous. Up next, Catherine shows her new husband her true colors. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. 
So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now back to the story. In 1974, Catherine Knight joined David Kellett in blissful matrimony. After spending their wedding day with their loved ones at the Aberdeen pub, the happy couple went home to celebrate in private. According to Kellett, he and the missus made love three times that night, a fitting tribute to their blossoming relationship. 18-year-old Catherine wasn't quite so impressed. Kellett later said she woke him up hours later, her hands around his throat, choking him in her rage. Three times wasn't enough, she told him. Her parents had sex five times on their wedding night, which meant that already her new husband was letting her down. She wasn't getting what she deserved from this man. Men, they were everything her mother said they'd be. Of course, Catherine had grown up in a house where sex was given when demanded, so her perspective on consent and stamina was skewed. And whether Kellett was up for another two times after a day of drinking is unclear. It's possible he convinced Kath to simply round up in her mind if she was so concerned with the numbers. But given what we know about her, that seems unlikely. And unfortunately, Catherine's erratic behavior was just beginning. Now that she'd married Kellett, she seemed to feel no need to curb her worst impulses, airing them out like damp laundry. Which, by the way, had to be hung out in a very specific way. You see, Catherine didn't want her underwear displayed on the outside of the clothesline for all of Aberdeen to see. And if Kellett got it wrong, she would fly into a screaming, violent rage. It was one of countless petty upsets that infuriated Catherine, many of which seemed to originate with her mother. Mothers-in-law can be a headache in even the best marriages, but Barbara Knight's influence dominated her daughter's new union. Her word was law, and her relationship and housekeeping advice to Catherine was sacrosanct. If there was a silver lining to Kathy's terrifying, abusive outbursts, it was that they seemed to fade as quickly as they arrived. It was a cycle typical of so many abusive relationships. And when things blew over, Kellett knew there'd be small gifts to say sorry, a six-pack of beer, some chocolate, or a particularly enthusiastic approach to their lovemaking. That was the side of Kath that Kellett remembered when she hit him, the sweetness she'd show with a thoughtful surprise or the way she took care of him. Perhaps that's why he never hit back and simply put up with the abuse. The thing was, if he hadn't endured and instead insisted that his wife get help for her anger issues, there's a chance her borderline personality disorder would have been identified. The Australian BPD Foundation points out that if it's diagnosed early, the condition is treatable. Frustratingly, no one seemed to think Catherine's violent temper and quick change mood swings were anything to be concerned about. What she really needed in her life, she decided, was a child. So about a year into their marriage, she and Kellett decided to start a family. She was 20 when she got pregnant. And about four months in, Kellett started cheating on her. It was something his mother-in-law had specifically warned him not to do. 
Luckily for him, Kath remained in the dark about his dalliances, and in May of 1976, their daughter, Melissa, arrived. Strangely, a newborn baby at home just wasn't the incentive Kellett needed to keep it in his pants, and he continued stepping out on his wife. Eventually, she grew suspicious of his various unexplained absences, and this contributed to what was already a tense atmosphere at home. In July of that year, an argument broke out. By then, Kath had had enough. She tried to stab her husband with a smashed beer bottle or something. It's one of those stories that's been told so many times and embellished in so many places that the truth behind the trauma has somehow been forgotten. The upshot is that Kellett was done with his marriage and he plotted his escape. Within weeks, he'd skipped town with his new teenage girlfriend, leaving behind a two-month-old daughter, a note of explanation, and an inconsolable wife. Catherine was a wreck and took to carrying around her abattoir knives with her everywhere she went. If that wasn't concerning enough, the new mother repeatedly threatened to kill her daughter, reportedly blaming the infant for her husband's departure. As such, she seemed intent on doing harm to the little girl, and some stories say she swung her around by the ankles. As for herself, Kath was running on empty and threatened suicide. It was clear she needed help. Eventually, someone brought Catherine to a psychiatric hospital in the town of Tamworth, nearly two hours away, where she was deemed a danger to herself and others. And at last, she was going to get the professional attention she needed. But for only two weeks, she was placed on a course of antidepressants and then discharged from the hospital. Of course, things didn't go so well after that. On August 3rd, Kath walked through Aberdeen, clearly in intense mental anguish. She was wailing in the street and throwing her baby's pram from side to side. At one stage, she reportedly left young Melissa lying on the train tracks that cut through the town, not long before a southbound rattler was due to pass through. After that, she seized an axe from a nearby front yard and brandished it as she ran around the little town. Thankfully, no one was hurt in her terrifying rampage. A man found Melissa before the train came through, and a police constable arrived on the scene to talk Catherine down. Once she was placated, he escorted her back to the hospital in Tamworth, where she told doctors that she'd do it all again, only with a knife the next time. So with that in mind, they discharged her that same night. And I think you can probably see where this is going. A couple of days later, Catherine showed up at a neighbor's house, seemingly frantic because her daughter was sick and she needed a ride to the doctor. The woman's teenage daughter, who we'll call Sharon, followed Kath inside to help her bring Melissa out to the car, but quickly realized that something was very, very wrong. Catherine bent over the bassinet for a moment, then pulled a knife from beneath the blankets and charged at the teenager. And here's where the details of the story get somewhat fuzzy. We know that Kath chased Sharon outside and then kept the entire neighbor family hostage for about an hour. Eventually, she calmed down enough to carry out the rest of her plan. Catherine climbed into the neighbor's car with them, now fixated on chasing down her deserting husband. 
Unfortunately for her, the vehicle was running low on fuel, so they had to pull into a petrol station just a short way down the road. That's when Sharon and her family seized their chance and ran inside, locking themselves in the station's small office. In response, Catherine's temper flared again, and she smashed a window to try and get at her escaped prisoners. By the time police arrived on the scene, she had one of the children held at knife point, but the two officers convinced her to let him go. Then both cops each picked up a broom and held them out while walking towards Catherine, keeping the makeshift weapons in front in case the volatile young mother made any sudden movements. But Catherine was done. The fight had gone out of her, the rage replaced with despair once more. She was taken into custody and brought to a psychiatric hospital in Morissette, about an hour and a half away. Thankfully, the doctors at Morissette decided Catherine needed extra care and kept her at the facility. One doctor wrote, quote, The girl has little insight into herself. She acts impulsively and violently when roused. She is both immature and intellectually unstable and seems to have little awareness of the consequences which might result from her irrational behavior. This analysis likely came after Catherine told staff that she blamed her daughter for Kellett's departure and that her recent violent outbursts were an attempt to get her hands on her mother-in-law and demand an explanation for what happened. Luckily for her, she wouldn't have to go looking for Kellett's mother again. She came to Catherine, and she brought a special guest. By this stage, Kellett's relationship with his teenage girlfriend had soured, and he came home, tail between his legs. When he heard where his wife was, he and his mother, who we'll call Lorraine, paid Catherine a visit. And without blinking, Catherine told Lorraine how she'd planned on killing her before the cops brought her in. Naturally, the hospital allowed Catherine to be released into Lorraine's care, so she and Kellett could give their marriage another go. With her husband back at last, Catherine seemed on top of the world. Nothing would come between them, not even her own family. The Knights had been looking after three-month-old Melissa while Catherine was in the hospital, and when the reunited couple stopped by to collect her, Barbara attacked her son-in-law. Displaying a temper much like her troubled daughter, she wrapped her hands around his neck and started to choke him. Catherine wasn't having that. She drew back her arm and punched her mother in the head, knocking her to the ground and ordering her to leave her man alone. After that, the seemingly repaired young family unit moved north to Queensland, where Kellett got a job driving trucks and Catherine found work in an abattoir near the city of Brisbane. This meant more work for her beloved knives, which she decided to hang on a set of hooks above her bed. Why? Just in case she needed them in the bedroom, or if there was occasion to kill somebody. Surprisingly, the implicit threat of deadly weapons dangling above their heads as they slept didn't improve the marriage. Catherine quickly became her old, jealous, moody self, swinging between the extremes of passionate woman who couldn't get enough of her husband to a vengeful, suspicious partner. One night, Catherine ordered Kellett to leave a darts tournament at the local pub. She didn't want him out that late but he ignored her and kept playing until the end of the competition. 
When he got home, Catherine was waiting for him. As soon as Kellett walked in the door, she hit him in the head with something heavy, sending him back into the night, running for cover. He spent the next week in the hospital, and when he got home, it turned out Catherine had burned all of his clothes. But by then, she was sorry and bought him a new wardrobe to prove it. Her swinging moods were frustrating and frightening. Unfortunately, Catherine was pregnant again, and Kellett didn't feel like he could abandon his child. Not again, anyhow. He was trapped. So for the next few years, the marriage persisted, chugging along despite the friction. And though their story was almost played out, there were still moments of terrifying abuse from Catherine, directed at the entire family. According to Kellett's sister, she once saw Catherine washing young Melissa's hair with water that was scalding hot, eliciting screams from the little girl. Other infractions were less remarkable, but no less frightening. Mugs and cups thrown across the room, either at walls or loved ones, it made no difference. The sound of shattering ceramics punctuated Kath's moods just the same. But perhaps the most frightening incident occurred after a brief separation. Kellett woke one night, feeling his wife's weight completely on him, and the heart-stopping pressure of a sharp blade held against his throat. Kath was straddling her husband, and she had an important question to ask him. She looked into his eyes and wondered if it was true that truck drivers had a woman in every town. It would be only too easy to kill him right then, she said. A simple flick of the wrist, and his blood would gush forth like an animal in the slaughterhouse. In an ordinary story, this might be the final straw. You'd expect Kellett to run for his life. But he didn't. He stayed. And in the end, it was Catherine who called an end to the marriage. Once again, she suspected him of cheating on her. So while he was at work, she emptied their house, taking every stick of furniture, leaving him two plates, two cups, two saucers, and a couch. Just the necessities for her unfaithful husband and his side piece, she figured. It was 1983 by the time 28-year-old Catherine Knight finally rolled back into her hometown of Aberdeen, eight years since she'd been taken to Morissette's mental hospital. She moved in with her parents again, back into the abusive home where she'd grown up, and went back to her old job at the abattoir, where her love affair with her knives began. It was easy to slip back into her old life. Yes, her father beat her, and yes, people in town probably talked about her behind her back, but Kath let it all wash over her like the tide. The next couple of years were marked mostly by a few injuries at work, which brought with them enjoyable and profitable time off, but frustrating back pain. Eventually, Catherine and her daughters moved into their own home. She dabbled in some relationships, but they always seemed to end when the man displayed pedophilic impulses towards the young girls. At least, that's what Kath maintained. She was protecting them from the dangers of these repulsive men, she said, even if no one else saw what she did. But in 1986, a new lover entered the picture who would leave a lasting impression. Like her volatile marriage, this new relationship would be passionate, and just like before, it would spill blood.
Catherine gets even more violent next. Now back to our story. 30-year-old Catherine Knight was ready to love again. Now back in her hometown of Aberdeen, New South Wales, the mother of two already had one husband in her past. But despite her continuing distrust of men, Kath was never one to stay off the horse for long. And in 1986, another steed caught her eye. David Saunders was a panel beater in his late 30s, who also spent time working at the mines near Aberdeen. According to those who knew him at the time, his one vice was that he liked his drink, which kept him at the local pub longer than most. Not long after he and Kath met, Saunders moved from his home in the next town over and into Kath's Aberdeen home, bringing his beloved dingo pup with him. That's another thing you should know about Saunders. He loved dogs. Everyone knew that. But before they had much time to acclimate as a new family unit, tragedy struck the Knight clan. One day in December, Catherine got a phone call telling her that her mother was sick and that she should come over. She did as she was told, but by the time she made it to the Knight homestead, Barbara Knight was already dead. Catherine was inconsolable and angry with her father, whom she blamed for the unexpected death. By the next day, Catherine was so upset she had to be sedated. It's possible this was her new beau's first glimpse at Catherine's intense emotional range. If it was, it probably didn't raise any flags, not when she was mourning her mother's passing. But Saunders' patience only lasted so long. About a month later, the relationship soured, and he retreated to Scone, unable to put up with her frightening moods and general instability. Of course, that wasn't the end of things. No, Catherine followed her man up the motorway to confront him. As was a running theme with most of her partners, she accused him of sleeping around and told him that she was pregnant while beating him as best she could. But Catherine wasn't done. She seized a knife from the kitchen, and for a moment, she considered what to do with it. She could rush at him, cut him for cheating on her, for knocking her up and leaving her, or she could hit him where she knew he would feel it most. Before Saunders could stop her, she ran outside and picked up his dingo puppy. She didn't hesitate, just killed the animal with one blow. By the time Saunders had caught up, the dog was dead, and Catherine felt her anger receding. He took one look at the blood and fled, bolting out the front door and into a neighbor's home. Unfortunately, this wasn't the first instance of animal cruelty from Catherine. According to those who knew her, Kath liked to swerve to hit cats or dogs if she saw them in the street. She'd also reportedly threatened to slit the throats of a neighbor's dogs when they wouldn't stop barking one day. But the murder of Saunders' dog feels different. For years, Kath used various abuse tactics to dominate her partners and keep them close. And by killing the dog, she showed that nothing was off limits to her. She wanted things her way, and she'd do whatever it took to get it. Various studies have shown links between domestic abuse and violence towards pets, and have demonstrated that it's a tool abusers use to control their partners. This kind of emotional violence is a tactic often employed by women who abuse their partners, as opposed to physical violence. 
Though in this case, it's possible Kath decided that her usual physical abuse hadn't done the trick, so it was time to try something new. And she wasn't done playing her cards. Later that night, Catherine visited the nearest hospital in Scone, claiming that Saunders had beaten her, had kicked her in the stomach. Her, a pregnant woman. But of course, Kath wasn't pregnant, nor did it seem like she'd been hit at all. There was a graze on her lip and a small bump on the back of her head. The doctors sent her away with aspirin and orders to come back in the morning. Well, that wasn't nearly dramatic enough for Catherine, so she visited another doctor's office just hours later to make the same claims. Only this time, she had lacerations on her forehead and lip and a bruised arm to help sell her story. While we can't be certain what happened in between the two visits, it certainly seems that she had gone out of her way to make sure her story was believable this time. She had to make her boyfriend the bad guy. Despite all this, Saunders gave Catherine another chance, but the episode had set a disturbing, if not familiar, pattern for their turbulent relationship. Violent mood swings, threats of self-harm, and even one suicide attempt. Saunders stuck around through it all. Just like Kellett before him, Saunders couldn't shake himself loose, and Kath seemed loath to let him go. His paychecks were great, and that meant she didn't have to work much. In fact, her back injury prevented her from doing so after 1986. It didn't stop her from other strenuous activities, though, and she eventually became pregnant. The pair welcomed a daughter in 1988, even though that didn't slow down the familiar, abusive, manipulative cycle that was their relationship. Whenever Saunders left, and he did from time to time, Kath was sure to follow him around town, showing up wherever he was, waiting for the moment of weakness she knew was coming. And those moments always came. Mostly, Saunders explained to a friend, because Catherine was so good in bed, she was irresistible. Though he could have done without her abuse, like the time she stabbed him with a pair of scissors, or the day she hit him in the head with a hot iron because he stayed too long at the pub. And though most reports indicate that Catherine was the violent one, she reported him to the police multiple times, claiming that he was an abusive drunk. Now, to be clear, we don't want to discount Catherine's side of the story. However, both of Saunders' other wives swore that he was never violent with them. Conversely, we know Catherine had a history of inflicting domestic abuse on her partners. So it's difficult to believe that her version of events is the more accurate. Especially because we know that when the abuse eventually got to be too much for Saunders to handle, he fled. He hid out in the city of Newcastle for months while telling Kath he was in Tottenham, about five hours away. He didn't intend to return to Aberdeen. Luckily, Kath could have competed for Australia at the Olympics of moving on. Her next tango partner was a man named John Chillingworth, who she met at a pub in Scone in 1990. Around a month after she met him, Catherine was pregnant, and she wasted no time registering the unborn child under John's name so she could claim support. Then she spent the pregnancy taunting him, claiming that maybe the baby was his and maybe it wasn't. It was a cruel tactic, 
possibly born of Kath's own uncertainty about the child's paternity. Either way, it was incredibly effective. John Chillingworth was wrapped around her little finger. But as far as we can tell, she was never physically abusive towards him. This might be because he was bigger than she, which wasn't always the case in her partners. Without a size advantage, perhaps she didn't fancy her odds. Still, she accused John of abusing her and her children, though confirmed records of this abuse are elusive. Luckily for John, he got off fairly light. Catherine ended things around October 1993 and cut off access to their son. She'd lost interest in John Chillingworth, and he had to continue supporting their child financially, so there was no use keeping him around, not when she set her sights on someone new. That shiny new beau was 38-year-old John Price. At 5'6", he was shorter than Catherine, which might have been what made her say yes when he asked her to dance at the pub that night. He'd no doubt be much easier to loom over than her last man. His below-average height wasn't the only thing Price had in common with Kath's exes. He also loved his drink and spent a lot of time at the pub. Though, to be fair, in a town as small as Aberdeen, what else was a bloke supposed to do? Though he may have overindulged on occasion, those who knew him also said he was kind-hearted and generous. Divorced, he reportedly still loved his ex-wife, Colleen, and seemed to harbor hopes that she'd return to him one day. In fact, he still lived in the house he'd built with her and kept it exactly as she'd left it. It was her house, he told people. The poor guy was lovesick. But for now, there was Catherine Knight. With her red hair and tempestuous nature, she might have seemed an exciting change of pace for Price. By the end of 1993, they'd tumbled into a relationship with all the hallmarks of Kat's earlier dalliances. Mood swings, passionate sex, startling abuse. But they were in it now, and neither made any moves to break things off. They might have, though, if they could see what was coming. What neither one of them knew at the start was that only one of them would get out of the relationship alive. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Catherine Knight's story and a crime so awful it earned her a record-setting punishment. For more information on Catherine Knight, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Bloodstain by Peter Lawler extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Scott Stronick. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joel Callen. With writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken. And research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.